Okay, I appreciate uh, all of you who have elected to be a part of this uh, presentation. I've been given a lot of my time and attention uh, in terms of the ministry where I am and, and not only where I am but where I have gone uh, over the past few months as far as lecturing and participating in conferences uh, to the issue of the post-pandemic ministry. You know, what uh, the post-pandemic situation or the pandemic situation may have uh, stated in terms of uh, the message to the church, what God may have been doing for us, and what I believe that God was doing for us, for the church, uh, and the situation of the church at uh, during that time, and then the calling of the church going forward, you know, from the pandemic until un into into the future. So we're going to be talking about church growth, and uh, that's I find that to be uh, a important subject matter because before the pandemic, as we entered into this situation, as you know, many churches was in serious decline. Uh, the church was on the precipice of, of, of serious decline. Many churches uh, were going out of existence. Many churches were lost in terms of their identity. Uh, and therefore, there are so many reasons that we could probably, there are many reasons that we could probably attribute, you know, to the situation affecting the church. And then, uh, it is always, it is my strong belief, you know, based upon what I uh, consider and discern to be the hand of God at work, uh, that if we come out of this pandemic and not learn the lessons of it and not be discerning of what God was doing in and through it, uh, then our latter end will be worse uh, than the first. So when we talk about uh, the situation, I'm, I'm gonna move quite rapidly. I just put a lot of notes together in terms of, of, of uh, uh, insight that I've gathered, you know, through research and through experience. Uh, so I'm not gonna get to all of this. I just put it. I just put it into a PowerPoint so that if I need to get it, I'll go get it. <laughs> but I want to give you. I want to give you uh, the essence of what I think. You know, is vitally important for this for this occasion. First, I want to do a candid assessment. This is my candid assessment. You know, it's not based upon any scientific research. It's based upon uh, observation, experience. You know, and and training to some degree. Uh, I am a minister trained in social ethics. I taught ethics here at Pepperdine for for a minute when I was going to working on a PhD at the University of Southern California. Uh, so I do have some background in terms of making informed observations. <laughs> um, I want to talk about uh, first of all, I want to give an assessment, and it's, I, I realize that I don't have. Um, let's see, how do I do this? Uh, I, I don't have a handout, you know, to give you. I apologize for that, but I, I do have graphics on screen that you can follow us with. And so, what I want to give you is a candid assessment of the problem. When we talk about church growth and when we see churches in decline um, in mass numbers, uh, then there is evidently a problem. And we have to understand the problem, you know, in order to appreciate uh, any solution or to assess what would be a proper solution. And again, I would say that my assessment is not scientific, it's personal. Uh, it carries only the weight of my background in the church. You know, I've been in ministry. I don't want to date myself, <laughs> but I've been preaching for over 45 years uh, at one congregation. Uh, I am the senior minister there. We we have other ministers on staff, uh, but I've been preaching for the for the Reseda Church, which was once the Bond Street Church of Christ uh, in the Northeast Valley of Pacoma, uh, and so uh, I've been there. Uh, 40, 47 years, 
and married to Margaret for 46. <laughs> okay. Um, my training goes back to the National Christian Institute, you know, where I had the opportunity to spend time as a boy preacher with Brother Marshall Keeble. Many of you, you know, may be old enough to know him or uh, informed enough to know about him. You know, so I had the opportunity of being one of the boy preachers. I was the last of the NCI uh, group, you know, that was there uh, when the school closed in 1968. 1966, I'm sorry. Um, and, and of course, then I matriculated to Southwestern Christian College and then to Pepperdine. I graduated from Pepperdine, uh, both undergraduate and graduate, and then I did my uh, graduate work, uh, postgraduate work at the University of Southern Cal. I want to say um, there are some assumptions associated, you know, with this. And, and my first assumption is the church can grow and it should be growing. Which you, you would agree with that. <coughs> you know, the church should be growing. There's no reason why the church, you know, should be in decline. Uh, but the church is in serious and has been in serious decline and that decline is evidenced by uh, the aging populations of the church. If you come to the lectureship and just look over the audience, you can see this. Even the lectureship audience is aging, you know, in the sense of the absence of, of the younger generations, you know, in numbers. Um, the decline is evidenced by the vital signs, you know, sometimes the things that we measure as vital signs of life in the church, such as giving, such as, such as attendance, such as the generational uh, gap, uh, the total absence of creative minds, such as college age students and this type of thing. You know, sometimes we have a bunch of dreamers but no visionaries. You know, the, young, the visionaries usually come from the younger generation, am I right about it? Uh, and there's a place and a position in the church for the dreamers, you know. Uh, I believe that God intends for there to be those who know, you know, where we've come from and can appreciate, you know, the history of tradition, you know, in the Lord's church. Uh, and so that's, that's so important. But what are the problems? I want to give you three areas uh, that I think, you know, has contributed to uh, the problem of the church and one uh, would be considered what is called cultural insensitivity. Many churches uh, choose to be anti-cultural uh, versus counter-cultural. You know, to be anti-cultural culture is kind of uh, looking at everything outside the doors of the church as being as being bad, evil, and of the devil, and not realizing that Jesus is not only the head of the church. You know, but he's the cosmic ruler of the universe. Am I right about that? That's right. That's right. He's the, he's the, and so when you start criticizing the world as though everything is chaos instead of cosmos, then you're literally, you're literally criticizing the reign of Christ because he's over it all. And that's why we can speak of the concept of holy evil. Isn't that, isn't that sound controversial? <laughs> you know, holiness and evil. You know, because the Lord said in Isaiah, he says, I form the light, I make the darkness, I create, uh, I create these, I, the Lord, do all of these things. You know, so he takes responsibility for everything that transpires uh, because it serves high and holy purposes of God. And so the point is, uh, one of the problems associated with the church is simply cultural insensitivity. The church, the choice is Anti-cultural versus countercultural. The consequence, to be cultural means to be corrupted. You know, for the church to be cultural, it means to be corrupted. To be anti-cultural is to be crushed. To be crushed. To be countercultural is to be Christ-centered. It's like building the all platforms out in the ocean. <coughs> You know, they don't build those all platforms to be rigid, you know, because the ocean, the environment the, the, will destroy them. You know, can you imagine the waves beating upon those things? You know, they have to be, be they have to move. You said, and they have computers that literally, if, the, if they get, it get too far tilted to one side, computers goes off to get it tilted back to the center. 
The idea is to keep it over the center of the of where they're drilling. Keep it over the hole, you know. And so uh, the there are those even in the church when the church gets too far to the right, there you hear the voices, and they get too far to the left, you hear the voices. You know, the idea, you know, is to remain balanced, to stay, to, to stay Christ-centered. The, the second problem associated with the church is not just cultural insensitivity, you know, but change-resistant. You know, there are churches uh, that view change in any form, change is essential uh, in any form as simply departing from. You know, there's any form of change in the church. It's a departure from the faith. You know, but many times people don't realize that change is essential and inevitable in all forms of life. You know, anything that is living will evidence change <coughs> if it's alive. You know, somebody show you a picture of yourself 30 years ago. You'd be saying, is that me? <laughs> you know, the point is, you know, that we mature. And maturity uh, necessitates change. You know, and so... Uh, Fashions alter, appearance, you know, and identity for even within that remains to say there's something essential about your identity that does not change, you know, and so some change uh, that can be harmful uh, has to do with the identity of the church, you know, but there are changes that are necessary in terms of the progress of the church, the maturity of the church, the development of the church. You know, if you were to sit in a church in the first century, that is before the 11th century, you sit in church in the first, first century and you listen to their singing, uh, you think they're going to be singing the same way that you're singing today. <laughs> you know, the early church songs were more like chanting. You know, that wasn't anything in terms of four-point harmony until after the 12th century. You know, and so things change, you know, in how, you know, things are done. God tells us what to do, but he never tells us how, you know, to do it. Uh, my mentor, Brother Keeble, I mentioned, he wrote a biography. His biography was from mule back to super jet with the gospel. And what that biography, you know, did was chronicled his life from when he first started preaching back in the 1800s. And he was traveling from place to place by muleback. And when he died in 1968, he was taking the gospel from place to place by superjet. Isn't that right? Now, now, if I were to write <laughs> a biography, it would probably be from superjet to the internet <laughs> with the gospel. You know, so things change and methods change, and has to be updated according uh, to. Uh, the needs of the time and what God has provided, you know, in the time. That's why we're always told what to do, but we're never told how to do it. You know, you take the gospel to the whole world. How? You know, it may be through the internet. It may be through, you know, as Brother Keeble uh, indicates, super jet. You know, however, uh, we ought to take the gospel. Change resistance. Choice. The choice is navigating versus negating change. That's what the choice is about. Some people choose to negate change rather than to navigate change. But let me tell you, you know, if, you, if the church is going to live, it's going to have to deal with and embrace the idea of change. You know, and if you don't, you know, if you're in a church, you say, we haven't changed a thing. You know, it's because you're dead. <laughs> you know, that's why it's because you're dead. You know, and I tell this story, and I don't want to get hung up on this, uh, but a few years ago, uh, the body of Edgar Mevers, who was shot, assassinated in what, Jackson, Mississippi during the Civil Rights era. He was the president of the NAACP in Jackson, Mississippi, and he was assassinated. And then uh, as things developed years later, you know, they had to exhume his body. This is 40 years after his funeral, they exhumed his body. His son that superintended the, the exhumation of his remains uh, was there, you know, when they opened that casket. And the amazing thing about that, you know, and it was, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was reported all over. The amazing thing about it, when they opened that casket, his body was so well preserved that it, he could have had, that funeral could have taken place a week ago. That's how well, you know, that body was preserved when they opened that casket. But 
the thing that was so profound was his son, you know, that was only uh, a toddler, you know, when he was assassinated. 40 years old now was the perfect image of his dad. The exact image, you know, of his father when they opened that casket. And so the point is, his identity was frozen in time by death. That's right. You know, you die the way you are, when you get up, that's what you're going to look like. You know what I mean? If your body was raised. You know, but the point is, time, death freezes us in terms of identity. And so you have to understand, you know, that change is essential. It's an essential aspect of life because it's reflective of our growth and development. All right. And so what we have to do when we talk about, you know, dealing with change is it has to be navigated and not negated. Navigated and not negated. When we, when we uh, negate change, the consequence is negating change fuses and confuses our customs, you know, with our Christology. You know, we reify things as though this is the theology of it, you know, and mainly what we're doing is making a custom, you know, transitioning custom into theology when it is not designed for that. All right, we always evaluate methodology by theology. Methodology grows out of theology, and <coughs> theology stands in critique of our methods. Must always. Okay, um, let's let's move on. Uh, and that is, oh, I missed one. Where are we? Okay, and then the other problem is community isolation. You know, we choose to be segregated rather than just separated. You know, we segregate ourselves from the community as opposed to separating. The Bible said be separate. It didn't say be segregated. You know, and, 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 and there's a reason, you know, for that. You know, the choice is to insulate versus isolate. The church has to be insulated from the world, not isolated from the world. To be isolated is to be segregated. The consequence, when we, when, we, um, uh, ref when we do not insulate and we choose to be isolated, you know, then it affects evangelism. You know, we end up having gospel meetings and, and uh, we end up preaching mainly to ourselves. Our campaign for Christ, you, you know, thousands of members of the church in about 25 years. You know, why? Because there's no relationship you know, that these people have, you know, with the people around them. There's no relationship that the church has to the community. What did Christ tell us to do? He said, go make friends to sinners. That right? And there's a reason for that. Because evangelism, that this is another topic, this is not this one. But the point is, when you deal, when you deal with churches that are isolated in their community, um, then their evangelism uh, transitions into simply informational evangelism and evan informational evangelism cannot accomplish what God has designed the church to accomplish in terms of reaching the world you know you may not realize it but evangelism the foundation of evangelism is not information it's relationships that's right that's right it's called the incarnation in other words how did God and you know why because the problem of sin the problem of unbelief is not ignorance the problem of unbelief is rebellion. It is what Jesus told Nicodemus, you know, you receive not. He said, I've given you obvious things, the earthly things, and you cannot receive it. See, faith in the Bible is the will to receive. It's the willingness to receive, you know, what God is offering. And, and, and rebellion then has to be ameliorated. It has to be addressed and aggressed in order for the unbeliever to receive information that they could not normally and naturally receive. Can you imagine somebody walking in here, you know, and say, wait a minute, I want everybody to know, I'm Jesus. You know, a guy walked in our church one day, one, one Sunday evening worship, and walked right down to the front, you know, looked at everybody and said, I'm Jesus. <laughs> you know, well, Jesus got put out that day. <laughs> you know, but the point is, the point is evangelism 
uh, is fundamentally based upon the incarnation. God not just simply being a megaphone and, and heralding truth out of the skies, but God becoming human in order to impact humanity with the character of God, in order that humanity, unbelieving humanity and rebellious humanity might be able to receive the truth of God. You get it? In other words, until one is affected with God's character, with God's love, you know, then their heart would be unreceptive to God's truth. Right. And that's why when Jesus... Uh, gave that illustration in John 6 on the discourse on the bread of life. You know, he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He said, now your dad is, you know, that bread came out of the sky. He said, now except you eat the, the, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's right. And what happened as a result of him telling them? He was telling them truth. But what happened as a result? The multitudes from that time went back and walked no more with him. It was a hard saying. They couldn't receive it. They was offended at it. And then Jesus turned to the disciples, those who he had poured his life into, those who had seen, you know, his character, who had experienced who he was. And he said, will you also go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Mm -hmm. You have the words of eternal life. Right. And we believe and assure that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so understand, you know, that any, see, sometimes we think, that unbelievers are going to be evangelized by simply handing them a tract. Mm -hmm. You know, or just, you know, go, you know, come and listen to my preacher. You know, and don't realize, you know, there are, there is a relational foundation, you know, to effective soul winning. That's right. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's biblical. And, and uh, we can, uh, we can talk about that again at another situation. But what is church growth? <clears throat> You know, let's properly define it as we move forward. Church growth, healthy church growth is holistic growth. And the way I would define holistic growth is not just, is, is not only qualitative, but it's also quantitative. Some people want to, you know, take on one end versus the other. You know, that God is not interested in numbers. God is interested in numbers. You read the book of the book, you read the book of Acts and all you're reading in the first eight chapters, numbers. Numbers were added. <coughs> 3,000, the Bible says, joined, uh, was added that same day. You know, they that gladly received the word were baptized in the same day, 3,000. You know, over and over again. You know, then in, in chapter 4, 5,000, just counting the family, just counting the men. Well, if, if one, somebody could say 5,000, that means somebody was doing some counting. <laughs> 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 they were doing some counting. You know, so so we get into this theology of of of, of small. We create our own uh, small church theology that God ain't concerned about numbers. He's only concerned about you know us being close to one another and loving one another. You know, that love is designed you know to be a witness to an unbelieving and lost world. Isn't that right? And so uh, I you know there's a lot I can say about that, but that's not the thing, that's not the object. Church growth <coughs> is the agenda of the kingdom. It's our agenda. Do you not know that what Christ inaugurated on the day of Pentecost was established by through the cross and his redemptive work is a new creation? That's right. In other words, uh, Christ comes to reconcile a broken world. What does 2 Corinthians say? That God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. We live in a broken world. And the and the the glorious thing about this is that God has invited you and I, the church, to participate in the mission and ministry of Christ of reconciling a broken world. Yeah. And the Bible says if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. You know, it didn't just say new creature, but new creation. The idea is that he reconciles everything around them. You know, he is, God is reconciling a broken world, you know, to himself. And um, and so we have to deal with this. And one of the things that I believe is evidence that became evident uh, and unveiled during the pandemic is two things. Number one, the prevailing ills of society. 
you know, the, the pandemic unveiled crisis in our world, in our communities, you know, that, and many times that unveiling literally tore many churches apart. You know, many churches that were, you know, had some level of diversity, you know, literally start experiencing schism as a result of all that came out and all that became the conversation and in the, in the media uh, during the pandemic. It unveiled that there's still brokenness among us. There are, there are, we live in a fractured world. Racial divides still exist. That's right. And so the second thing, the first thing, the, 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 you know, what God did during that pandemic is unveil, you know, and let everybody see that these are ills that still exist. And then the second thing is it unveiled the fact that the church was unprepared to deal with it. And what, what is disheartening about that, when you talk about the church being unprepared. Amen. We are a part of a faith movement that places strong emphasis and take very seriously the ministry of reconciliation. That's right. You know, we, 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 we proclaim a very high view of the church. You know, there's no church that I know of in our in Christendom that has such a high view of the church that's not a cult. The churches of Christ proclaims a high view of the church and is not cultic. But we are not. The second thing is we, we present a high view of the word of God. The authority of the word of God. And those are values. Those are things that are associated with our identity. But the pandemic comes upon us and helps us to undersee, help us to see that we're not prepared to engage the community in conversation about reconciliation. We're not prepared to administer, to, to help people, you know, warring factions of the community to reconcile because we're divided ourselves. We're segregated ourselves. And the, and the worst thing about it is Nobody seems to think there's anything wrong with it. Nobody, nobody feels that it's anything that needs addressing. I'm not talking about, you know, diversity. And I, you know, I, I hail diversity. I think diversity is good. You know, I don't think God expects, uh, you know, my Caucasian brother over here to be black or this black brother over here to be white. I don't think that that's the idea. Because God created ethnic families, didn't he? Yes. It's not something to be erased. You know, but Satan comes in through the sinfulness of of our need for uh, of our spiritual depravity, and turns that those ethnic units into segregated units, mm -hmm. into division. And so the point is, when we don't, when we don't recognize that this culture of the world literally impacts the church, and the church. You know, as God designed it, has, is designed to be a model of community. That's right. A model where people of different tongues and different ethnicities and different, you know, backgrounds can come together in harmony. Yeah. In harmony. Not uniformity, but harmony. That's right. And so the point is that the the pandemic unveiled the unpreparedness of the church to engage the community in conversation. And one of the reasons we were unprepared, not only because of the same problems existing among us, but because of our community isolation. See, the vision that we often refer to as the Restoration Vision was formulated during uh, an intellectual ethos that we call the Enlightenment, right? I'm saying the vision, we're talking about the restoration vision. I'm not talking about the restoration vision was formulated and influenced by the ethos of the Enlightenment. One of the problems associated with that, one of the baggage that came along with that, is in the Enlightenment, there was a divide, cultural divide of sacred and secular. 
In other words, we look at certain things. In other words, we look at certain things as being secular and not the business of the church. That's what I'm talking about. You know, oh, no, that's a social problem. That's not the church problem. <laughs> you know, with all of reality, Christ is over it all. That's right. You know, he's over, he's, he's over the in, he's over the cosmos. Yes, yes. You know, but we have inherited, you know, a divided cultural ethos where certain things that we have come to be conditioned to think is not, is not within the scope of our ministry. I'm that's why, that's why there needs to be a resetting. And, and when the church becomes irrelevant to society, when we begin to simply define the church as meeting together on Sundays, you know, what's the church? It's going to church. You know what the Lord did during that pandemic, when that pandemic, you know, comes out? It's like children fighting, or children not getting along, and some mature person said, just go to your room. <laughs> Get your act together. And so it, it seems to me that the Lord was saying even to us, you know, is that we need to go to our rooms. Inasmuch as you only define being the church as, as what you do on Sundays, then go to your room. And, and come to realize that there are four other purposes besides the purpose of worship. There's the purpose of fellowship. Right. That's the purpose of ministry. Yes. That's the purpose of mission. Yeah. That's the purpose of discipleship. Praise God. All of these are purposes that God ordained for the church. Right. And so when we define who we are only by one purpose, and that is meeting together to worship, and God said, okay, I'm going to fix it where you can't do that. That's right. You got to stay in your house. You got to figure out you know, how to be the church when you are not assembling. Thank you. How to be the church. And if we don't learn that lesson, you know, if we don't learn the lesson of what God was doing for us, and many of us, as a result of that, we develop consciousness. We, we, you know, our church feeds over 400 people every weekend, you know, in our parking lot. You know, just mission, touching people's lives, you know, in ways. So the point is that we have to learn that there are purposes of the church that lie at the very heart and DNA of our identity. And if we don't deal with that, you know, then church growth, as God has designed it, you know, church growth is holistic. You know, it is designed to be, to have responsible membership and also numerical growth as a result. The Bible says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you not know one of the things about this passage is it literally takes a concept and makes it and defines the basic ministry of the church. The, the basic ministry of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. But the way we have often simply treated that is just reconciling people to God. But the cross went in two directions. What did God do? What did Christ do at the cross? He removed the barriers. He, he removed barriers of separation, such as the barrier that separated man from God was what? Sin. So the death of Christ as a substitute, you know, for, for sinful humanity, removed the barrier of sin and reconciled humanity, believing humanity, to God. And then not only did the death of Christ remove that barrier, but that was a barrier of enmity between Jew and Gentile. That is, between Jews and all the other nations. You know, sometimes we, we uh, use the word Gentile, we don't realize that that's talking about us. <laughs> Anybody that's not a Jew is Gentile. Isn't that right? It's all the other nations. And what separated Jews from other nations is simply God gave them the Ten Commandment covenant, didn't give it to any other nation. And so that became enmity between Jew and Gentile and other nations. Jews prided themselves in the fact that they were the recipients of the law. They were recipients of the promise. They were the covenant. They were the covenant people. And so when God, in that marriage relationship with the Jews, because he chose them, you know, as a revelation community, you know, to, to, in other words, to communicate revelation through his relationship to a particular nation of people, you know, and so once that was fulfilled, 
Christ dies on the cross, and this is why you cannot make Christ half God and half man. He was fully God, fully man. Amen. And because he was fully God, that simply means the husband. In that relationship, in that marriage between God and Israel, the husband died. Don't Paul make that point in Romans 4? Or Romans 7? He said, woman is bound by, by law to her husband so long as the husband lives. And when her husband be dead, she is free from that law to be married to another. If, she, if while her husband lives, she's married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. Y'all know that. Say amen. amen. This ain't going to be about marriage now. <laughs> you know, he's talking about the general law of marriage now. You know, he said, oh, husband be dead, and she's, it, then she's free. But his point was not about husband and wife. His point was about Christ, God's relationship to the Jews. He said, therefore, we have, been, we have become dead to the law. That, that is to that marriage by the body of Christ. That we could be married to another. Even to him who is raised from the dead. Everybody bring forth fruit unto God. You know, so the point is, uh, not only did the death of Christ bring about reconciliation between God and man, but it also brought reconciliation between man and man. And that's the kind of community that God established and God intended, you know, in the work of Christ, you know, for that community and that relation, those relationships to be modeled. Hello, somebody. I want to uh, move on and talk about the reset then. The reset. The first thing, and I want to say there are three major objectives, and, and uh, we're, we're going to be conducting actually a, a forum for ministers and leaders on, on, on the ideas that are, are presented here. Uh, so they'll be really fleshed out. I'm just giving you the end result. How much what, oh, amount of time? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to go through this real quick, okay? Uh, so the first thing is restoring the vision. The church needs to restore its commitment to a prophetic vision of the church. You know, a prophetic vision. I use Ephesians 2, you know, because Ephesians 2 is basically... Uh, a description, an outline of God's vision for the church. And it always began with the foundation, and that is God's power in the gospel. You know, in other words, the vision of salvation. You know, one of the things that you, you're hearing critique over and over again, that was a preacher in the valley, evangelical preacher in the valley, that wrote a book called uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, The Gospel According to the Apostles. Anybody know who that preacher was? And he got a lot of criticism because he was, he was critiquing easy believism and cheap grace in evangelical evangelism. Mm -hmm. Where people just come down, nothing is said about repentance, nothing is said about obedience. You know, they just come down and say a sinner's prayer. And if you just said that prayer, I believe you just got born again. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing that the church has got to do, it needs to do, is recommit ourselves to the vision of the gospel message. The gospel message is, it involves resurrection. You remember when the, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees came and Christ said, show us the trick, show us the trick. They want to see miracles. And Christ says, no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well, three days and three days, I said well. But Jonah was, <laughs> That's all right. So shall some man. I know somebody gonna be critiquing that. <laughs> you know what he said? You know what he said? <laughs> they don't evaluate. But as Jonah was in the belly of the big fish. Of the big fish. <laughs> so shall the son of man be in the heart of the earth. The point is the, the true sign, what Christ was saying, you know, the signs of the kingdom is not the signs of, of his confirmation, the signs of his deity, all those things that he did, you know, that the gospel writers wrote about to confirm that he was who he, who he claimed to be, who he was, you know, but he said a real sign and the sign of the kingdom is resurrection, That's right. mm -hmm. is a resurrected life. That's right. And you know what that's the gospel about, is about? The gospel is how, how mercy and truth came together to raise you and I from being dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, mercy is powerful. That's right, it's powerful. And, and that's why I say, you know, it is mercy, it is God's mercy that literally prepares your heart. That's before the evangelists get there. Before I ever get there with the message, God has already prepared you. 
you know, by experiences of mercy, experiencing God's mercy, you become ready to receive the message. That's why in Psalms 85, the Bible says, you know, when righteousness that come from above, above and truth coming from below, you know, when mercy and truth kiss each other. That's what happens in conversion. You know, so the point is uh, that the mercy of God, you know, that's a passage, I forgot I do have some traffic up here on this. Now, this passage, and I'm just using one, one text, one passage out of Ephesians 2 that says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, who, but God, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. And that's what the gospel is about. And we have to be committed to preaching the gospel. And not compromising that message. Mm -hmm. Preaching the gospel. Some people think preaching the gospel is, is just saying, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's not, that's just a, that's a process. The gospel is how faith brings you in participation with the death of Christ. Dying to sin. And as a result of that death, being buried with him in baptism. And as a result of that, being raised by the Holy Spirit to a new life. That's right. And so the point is, uh, that's a part of the, the, the restoring the vision. And then restore the vision of the beloved community. The beloved community. You know, many times we, we are surrendering our identity and what we, what, what, what we have from the word of God in terms of the church as the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> you know, the vision of the early church, when we talk about the, the vision of the church, it's not a primitive vision. There's no church back in the New Testament that we're trying to restore, that I'm trying to restore. But I am committed to restore the vision of the early church as seeing themselves as the kingdom of heaven. That's a prophetic vision. That's not a primitive vision. That's a vision that stands in judgment of every time and culture. That's right. It's a prophetic vision. When we get to heaven, nobody's going to be asking where, where my group meets. You know, where in my church? That's not going to be. We are letting people know that God established a community. He established a church. You know, and that church has no second-class citizenship. This is what this is what he says in um, in Ephesians two. Notice he said, "Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, fellow citizens with the but fellow citizens with the saints." Members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, that's a, that, that's just a summation, you know, of those verses that deals with the God's vision for the church as a community, as a kingdom, without second-class citizenship. When you read the Old Testament, you read Jeremiah. And I've been reading through uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'm in Ezekiel now, just as you know. Morning devotional. Is how much the, the message of those books? God is bringing judgment upon upon Jerusalem. God is bringing judgment upon Israel. Why? Because of injustices. That's right. Social injustice. How they treated the poor. How they treated the widows. How they treated you know the helpless. How they treated foreigners. Yes. He says you're going to be punished. So I'm not going to destroy you completely. Those who take you into captivity, I'll destroy them, but I'm not going to destroy you completely. But I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring judgment on you. And all that judgment had to do with social injustice. Amen. And I'm saying that the God has called us to be a beloved community. That's right. And we, we need to start taking that seriously. Amen. And, and, and the reason for that is, do you not know, many of you know, you know, experience what back in the 60s, the civil rights movement. Do you not know the mantra of the civil rights movement was the, what King advocated as the vision was the vision of the beloved community? That was his favorite, you know, expression, concept, vision, community, the beloved. You know where he got that from? He got it right out of Ephesians 2. And that's been our, that's, 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 that's been our stuff. We've been advocating that long before King ever came along. The oneness that God intends for his community. The oneness of the new creation. 
the oneness of the kingdom of heaven. The undivided family of God. We used to use the term, and I said we, I, I suppose that a lot of us in here are from churches of Christ. So I said we. We used to use the term non-denominational. But I don't use that no more. <laughs> and the reason is because the meaning of that has changed. You know, when we would say non-denominational, we would just simply say in the church, you know, of the Bible is just not a denomination. It's not one of many. That's what we meant by that. But today when people say non-denominational, what they're just simply saying is this movement does not belong to our denominational hierarchy. It is separated. It is independent. And it belongs to this person. It's a community church. Yeah. It, 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 it's independently operated. Independently owned. We say T.D. Jakes, the, the part of South, that's T.D. Jakes movement. It's Pentecostal, but it, do, it does not adhere to the hierarchy of the Pentecostal church. And so the point is, non-denomination doesn't mean. So I use the term now, I say, the church is undenominational. <laughs> you know, we preach an undenominational Christianity. When you study the church from the Bible, you're just, you're just studying about an undenominational view of the church. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be uh, sectarian about that. I'm just simply saying that the vision of the kingdom is an undenominational vision. Undivided family of God. And there's nothing wrong with, with, with preaching that vision. And then the third aspect of, of the restored vision is the true sanctuary. That's at the bottom of Ephesians 2. Where the Bible says we're building together upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles for a habitation of God fitly framed together to form a habitation of God through the Spirit. When he talks about a habitation, he's talking about sanctuary. A sanctuary. And therefore... You know, there's a vision. And understand that sanctuary, and I don't have time to deal because this is these are sermons in and of itself. You know, but the concept of sanctuary in the Bible, uh, the idea of the assembled and gathered community as a sanctuary, as a true sanctuary, is not always synonymous with the concept of community, the body of Christ concept. Just like the Bible says in the church, let the woman keep silent, didn't it say that? It, it does say that, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but the point is, you know, the idea, you know, of the church, you know, as the ecclesia is not always synonymous with the biblical concept of body of Christ. Body of Christ often referred to the community of believers as opposed to sanctuary, just like in the Old Testament, you know, you had in the middle of the covenant community a sanctuary. The sanctuary was an institution of faith. The church is an institution of our faith. I don't need to get into that. And then, and then, uh, so the Bible says, in whom the whole building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, the, then the resetting of the ministry, and I'm just going to gloss over this because I'm, I'm already over time, two or three minutes. You know, we need to reset the spirituality of the ministry. That is, uh, you see this in Matthew 25, and in Matthew 25, you can outline the whole concept of ministry from that from that that particular chapter. The first 13 verses, the first 10 verses, deal with the spirit with the source. It talks about the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. What was foolish about those virgins? They had lamps and didn't have no oil in them. And that's the idea of ministry without the source of power to make it a light. And you know what the source of power for the ministry is? It's the Holy Spirit. And so we need to restore the spirituality of the ministry. Restore the power of the ministry. That enables the ministry to be seen by the community and others. Then secondly, uh, the stewardship of the ministry. The second parable in Matthew 25 is the man who went on a trip and then he, he gave certain monies to his servants. He gave five talents, these, these are, this is money, silver. You know, he gave, gave five talents to one, you know, two to another, you know, and, and, and so on. But the point is, ministry, what God gives us in terms of gifts, that those gifts has to be invested because the ministry is the work of the Lord. And when we invest faith, you know, in the ministry, then we're going to see the increase of God. The outcome of ministry is never to be a, a human achievement. It's to be a divine accomplishment. We would never experience divine accomplishment if we don't sow seeds of faith. 
And the church has to learn how to sow seeds of faith, expecting the outcome to be from the Lord. That's right. The outcome to be from the Lord. I wish I had time to give examples of that. And then the last, the last part is the services of ministry. That is resetting the services, meeting the needs. Christ said, I was hungry, you fed me. I was, I was sick and in prison, you visited me. You know, those are meeting needs. A church that does not meet the needs of, of, of others will never be a thriving congregation. And then the last part of this uh, is refocusing the mission. We need to refocus the mission of the church. And you know what the mission of the church is? The mission is the mission of Christ. And the best the best passage I could get to illustrate this is simply Luke 4 when he went to went into Nazareth and and the rabbi gave him the gave, gave him the scroll and he found the place where he said the spirit of the Lord is upon me he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim deliverance to the captives you know that's that's the targets of ministry the targets of the mission is the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives. Refocus on when you talk about spending money for outreach. When you talk about doing ministry for outreach, who are you reaching? Whose lives are you touching? What circumstances are you addressing? The church needs to refocus its mission on, on the poor, the brokenhearted, people who are in grief. Every time somebody died in the community, that's an opportunity for ministry. These are ways that God prepares people's hearts, you know, to receive truth that they could not naturally and normally receive. People who are captives, some self-imposed prison through vice, you know, in other words, proclaim recovery, give sight to the blind, liberate the oppressed. And then the purposes, proclaim deliverance. Notice he said, preach the gospel, these are to heal, to liberate, to recover, to set at liberty. You know, those are the purposes of mission. And then finally, the vision is to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. You know what that, that has reference to? In the Old Testament, we call Jubilee. And do you not know the kingdom era is simply jubilee? That's right. God giving us, giving humanity, you and I who become children of God, putting us in a relationship of favor. Of favor. Do you, can you imagine what it means to have God's favor? For God's favor to be on your life? Can you imagine that? He said to proclaim the day of divine favor. That's right. You don't always have to be in, in, in war with God. Your arms, somebody says, too short <laughs> to box with God. Any questions before? We're going to stop right there. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And I appreciate you so very much.